Hey, welcome to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. My name is John, and I am grateful for you and so glad you're joining me on the podcast. Our goal here on the Bible and Life is to provide what I call blue jeans theology. That is down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life that's rooted in everyday life to help you and me and everyone follow Jesus in their everyday life. And so thanks for being a part of the Bible and Life family. Thanks for checking out the podcast if this is your first time here. And thanks to all of you who make the Bible and Life podcast, the listeners commentary, and the entire online ministry of the Bible and Life possible by your faithful generosity. Thanks for uh, Josh and Michelle joining the team of donors this last couple months. I deeply appreciate your support. And if you want to join the team and become a supporter of the Bible and Life, you can do so at World Family Mission or through my Patreon page. The links to both of those are down in the notes below. All right, we've been in a series over the last uh, few weeks where we're just really exploring the kinds of questions that we often wrestle with uh, as we're really just trying to say, is this real? Like walking by faith sometimes is challenging and we have questions, we have doubts. And there are different kinds of questions that strike us at different stages of life or that strike different kinds of people. And some of those questions are uh, straightforward intellectual questions where I, I just want the evidence. I want the data. I want to know, is this true? Can I trust this? Some of those questions are more personal in nature. Like I have been praying and praying and praying. It just seems like God's not answering my prayer or man, the one we wrestled with on last week's episode, you know, is oftentimes a very personal question. Like there's been so much heartache and suffering in my life or in my family. And where is God in the midst of all of that? And so there's intellectual questions and there's personal questions, there's philosophical questions. And even though we're looking at those questions and we're exploring them and offering some perspective and some guidance, some frameworks for thinking about them, in some cases, some intellectual answers to some of those questions, I feel like it's appropriate to say at this point in the series that the goal the goal of our walk with God is not to get all of our questions answered. It, the goal of our walk with God is to learn to trust Him and to, to learn to walk with Him faithfully and humbly, even when things don't make sense. Uh, I often think of the book of Habakkuk on that regard, where at the end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's like, uh, uh, you know, whether the good things come my way, it's stated in the language of poetry of his day, whether good things come my way or not, I will trust the Lord. I will walk with the Lord. And that's really the goal is to not get all our questions answered, not to have it all figured out, but to walk humbly and faithfully with God. And, and so even though we're exploring these questions, just keep that in mind. We're never going to get all our questions answered. And as finite beings, we're never fully going to understand God. Now, in this episode, I want to continue talking about what we began last week, where we started talking about the reliability of the Bible and what we said in brief is that the witnesses to Jesus are trustworthy and reliable. Their testimony is reliable. We can have confidence that they're telling us the truth of what they saw and heard and experienced in history, in the real world, about Jesus. And that gives us an anchor point and a place to stand as we consider some of the other questions we have or some of the things that are hard for us as we walk with God and don't make sense or even some of the other challenges to the Bible that, that come up for us as we walk with God. 
and the doubts and the challenges people have about the Bible are of different kinds. Some have to do with clear, verifiable, objective facts, and you can answer a straightforward uh, yes or no about those. Some are more philosophical, and some are even more just preferential, feeling-based, kind of sentiment type things. All right, and there's just different kinds of questions. So what I want to do in this episode is I, I want to, over the next handful of minutes, just explore a handful of the different kinds of questions fairly quickly. There's tons we could say about each of the things we're going to talk about here, but fairly quickly hit just a handful of some of the doubts or questions or challenges that people have experienced or heard regarding the Bible. So some people have doubts about the Bible because they've heard that the Bible is full of errors and mistakes. And my question to that is, honestly and graciously, can you show me one? Can you show me one? If, if someone says, man, the Bible is just full of errors and mistakes, show me one. And I'm not being snarky when I ask that follow-up question. What I'm trying to do is help us look at specific examples because broad generalities just aren't that helpful. And as I pointed out last week, the Bible is remarkably historically reliable. That's true, not just for the witnesses to Jesus, but really in both Testaments, Old and New Testaments alike, there's just tons of historical data in both those uh, testaments, and the Bible proves to be remarkably historically reliable. Uh, mountains and rivers and seas, bodies of water, they're where they're supposed to be. Cities and provinces are confirmed by uh, secular history. Whole empires are mentioned, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. We have archaeological evidence of these very places. We know about these places. Specific rulers from those empires, Sennacherib, Sargon, Tiglath-Pileser, right? Those, those are all mentioned in the Bible. We have their own writings and their own palaces and their own records. Cyrus from Persia. We have the Cyrus Cylinder that actually documents his foreign policy that shows up in the Bible. Uh, Darius, Caesar Augustus, Sergius Paulus, so on. Specific rulers that are mentioned in the Bible, we have records of from secular history. We know about them. We know when they ruled. We know some of the things they did. They even write about some of the events that are um, uh, recorded in the Bible. Specific Israelite rulers, such as David, from the Tel Dan inscription, like of the house of David. That was such a shocking find when they found that in the early 1990s that that at first it was like, we, we got to verify this. Is this for legit? Because it was external confirmation of King David from the Bible. Or uh, Omri and Jehu, two Israelite kings, and they're mentioned on the black obelisk of Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser was a, a Syrian king, and he wrote this, he had this big, tall little uh, series of inscriptions, and Omri and Jehu are mentioned on there. Um, specific events that are mentioned in the Bible are, are recorded from secular history. For example, the the rebellion of King Misha of Moab is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 3, and it's recorded on the Moabite stone, or Hezekiah's payment of tribute to Sennacherib. That's recorded in 2 Kings 18, and it's also mentioned on Sennacherib's own um, 
prison, the Taylor prison, where he recorded some of his events and his world conquests, or Hezekiah's construction of a pool and a conduit that's recorded in Second Chronicles. If you take a tour of Jerusalem now, you, you actually can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, how he brought the water inside the city walls so it wasn't so subject to siege, right? Uh, Jehoiakim's residence in Babylon, and actually how he was given rations from the king's table. That's recorded at the end of 2 Kings in 2 Kings 25. And we actually have ration tablets from Babylon itself that actually tell the menu, like what he, what he was actually given. Uh, the existence of Caiaphas, uh, the high priest during Jesus' trial, Matthew chapter 26. They've actually found the ossuary, that's a bone box, that originally held Caiaphas's bones at some point after his body had decomposed. We, we have that. The existence of Pilate, governor of Judea, right? We know about him from the Gospels. Well, we also have the Pilate inscription. So specific events, specific rulers. Are there a few historical difficulties in the Bible, things that make you scratch your head? Yes, there are a few of those. Um, the reality is there's there were more in the past than there are now, and as we learn more, the, the difficulties tend to go away. So yes, there's still a few historical difficulties, but is the Bible full of errors and mistakes? Absolutely not, just the opposite. The Bible is full of historical uh, realities, and it's proven to be very reliable. Uh, some have, have doubts because they were told, well, the Bible's been changed and rewritten so many times. And so here's a second question, a second issue that has been brought up. Oh, the Bible's been edited and redacted and changed. We don't even know what the original authors originally wrote. Um, that's kind of the objection embodied here. We could never know what was originally said. And again, this is one of those that just deals with straight up verifiable facts and the facts are in. And this just isn't, just isn't accurate. We actually know exactly what the original authors wrote because it hasn't been edited and changed. Um, and so the data is 100% clear. This objection is false. Uh, in summary, the, the main point of the data is we don't necessarily possess the original manuscripts. That is the original parchment and paper that this stuff was written on. But we do possess the original text. We know what was originally written. You take the New Testament. Um, the New Testament has the most manuscript evidence showing us what was originally written so that we can actually cross-reference it and see, has this been edited and changed? And the New Testament has the most manuscript evidence of any ancient document from the Greco-Roman time period and even to classical Greek period. Like you go all the way back to Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad does not have nearly the manuscript evidence, not even close to the New Testament. And yet it comes in second um, on the, the chart for manuscript evidence for its reliability. And it has more gaps in the manuscripts. It has more variations in the manuscripts than the New Testament. If we just we just took the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. When you throw in Syriac and Coptic and other ancient manuscripts, we have well over 30,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. Um, and, and so now you have more manuscripts to cross-reference. And what's amazing about that is we, we have way more manuscripts to cross With Homer's Iliad, you only have 650 or so manuscripts. We have over 5,000 Greek, total of over around 30,000 
when you put in other ancient languages. So all these manuscripts to cross-reference, and here's the amazing thing is there's less than 1% variation in the manuscripts. Less than 1% of the variation in the manuscripts. And so uh, 99 plus percent of the manuscript, you know, the, the text of the New Testament is without question. And then for the small, tiny percentage that is where it's like there's variation in the manuscripts, we know what the options are, and none of the options change in any significant way what, uh, what was, you know, like any major doctrine, any major teaching about Jesus, any major idea. You could actually just take that point, you know, whatever percentage, 0.5, 0.7% of the manuscripts where there's variations. You could even just, let's just remove those. And you have 99.3% certainty, and you have the exact same things that Christians have always believed and always taught, that the, the gospel writers have always passed on, that the apostles wrote. We lose nothing of significance. Like there is, There's no question about what the New Testament authors originally wrote. The manuscript evidence is that certain, that verifiable. And so this objection just falls victim to the facts. Um, the Bible has not been changed and edited and rewritten so many times that we could never know what was originally said. We know exactly what was originally said, except in a very small instance. And even in those instances, we have a pretty good idea because uh, the whole science of textual criticism, they can weigh the, the two options in those cases. And most of those are so minor, they don't really matter. And so uh, we have enough manuscript evidence to know exactly what the the New Testament originally said. Same true with the Old Testament. The Old Testament's older, doesn't have nearly the manuscript evidence. Uh, and yet the amazing thing is, for example, when they found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, by and large, confirmed almost exactly what we had been um, reading as our Old Testament for centuries, even though they were significantly older. And so uh, though there's not as many manuscripts for the Old Testament just because it's so much older, the ones we do have, uh, there is, uh, again, minimal variety amongst them. And we know where those places are. So even with the Old Testament, we have enough manuscript evidence to know that, yeah, we know what the original text of the Old Testament largely was, except in about 4 to 5% of the places. There's a couple options for us where it's like, eh, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that. Uh, and again, that's minor. Like Homer's Iliad comes in on the chart like for number two. It has around 640, 650 manuscripts compared to all the thousands we have for the Bible. And it has over a 5% variation rate. And that's number two. So if we, if we can't trust what was written in the Bible, then we can't trust any other ancient document from classical and ancient history. That's just uh, the, the nature of the fact. So that, that objection is one of those just straightforward facts one. The facts are in. We know exactly what was written in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, from the get-go. Here's, here's another objection, a third objection, another question that was asked through Instagram. The question was this. Why is the Holy Spirit able to make human men write scripture perfectly and inerrantly while they continue to be imperfect in every other area of their life. Now, first off, I think aiming for reliability is enough to believe the message of the Bible, right? So although I think what the biblical authors originally wrote is 100% true, 
the uh, writer of this question used the word inerrant, inerrantly. Like, so I, while I think the biblical authors, what they wrote originally was 100% true, I don't think it's necessary to prove that it's 100% true to have confidence in the message of the Bible. Let's just aim for it reliable, trustworthy. And what I pointed out last week and so far this week shows that it's trustworthy, it's reliable. So I think aiming for that is enough. Nevertheless, the question really involves the idea of inspiration. The question is, why is it that the Holy Spirit can make imperfect people write Scripture perfectly, even though they're not perfect in every other area of their life? And that's the question of inspiration. Make men write Scripture perfectly. Uh, the way the Bible itself says this, Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 says, all Scripture is inspired by God, right? And that's the idea that God inspired Scripture, and thus it's trustworthy and true. That's that's the question we're dealing with here. Now, that requires us to stop and think, well, how does inspiration work? What do we mean when we say all Scripture is inspired by God? So let me just clarify um, the way I think we should think about that based on uh, what we know inside the Bible about inspiration. Like when we say that all scriptures inspired. We're not saying God took over the mind and the hand of a human author and they, they sort of became like a human laser printer. And, you know, without even knowing what they were doing, they were just writing divine messages from God and, and it came hot off the press as if they were a human laser printer. That's not what inspiration means. Um, and inspiration doesn't mean they're perfect men. It means actually the exact opposite, that they're imperfect men, but God supervised what they wrote. And so here's the way to think about inspiration. Inspiration means that when they wrote as representatives of God, as authorized spokesmen for God, when they did that, God chose to supervise, keyword, supervise their writing uh, to ensure that what they said was true. That's what inspiration means in a nutshell, uh, that when they wrote on behalf of God as his authorized spokesman, God chose to supervise that writing so that the end result of their writing was what God wanted written. Um, it was supervised by God to communicate God's message to whomever they were writing it. And, and this appears to happen on somewhat of a continuum. That means it happens to varying degrees. For example, some of the Old Testament prophets uh, it's obvious that God speaks direct messages to some of those prophets, and then they pass on that message that God spoke to them to others. Or like Moses on Mount Sinai, God directly gave him the, the Ten Commandments, and Moses passed those on to others. And so in that case, there, here is a clear, direct message that was spoken to an individual, and then they wrote it down and passed it on to others. So when the message is speaking, you know, like direct messages given to them, that's like what we would call revelation. God is giving them a message. He's revealing it to them. When they're passing it on to other people, that's like inspiration. God will then supervise to make sure they don't mess up that message when they pass it on to others. To, to other people, um, like the apostles of Jesus, they're writing letters. And they're writing letters in, in their own, you know, with their own personality, based on their own relationship with the people they're writing the letter to, and based on what they've already taught them. So they write these letters, and as apostles, that means as uh, chosen, hand-picked, authorized spokesmen representing the Messiah, 
So that's what an apostle is. They're an official representative, an ambassador who speaks with a person's authority. In this case, they write and they speak with the authority of King Jesus, the Messiah. And so when they write their letters, the Messiah, King Jesus, gives oversight to their writing so that he authorizes what they say, so that it's what he wants said. He supervises it. And so it's not as if Jesus is speaking in their ear, you know, Paul writing Romans, Jesus is telling them what to write, Paul's writing it down. No, they're writing based on their relationship with the people, based on their knowledge, and then God, through his Spirit, is supervising that to make sure that what they say is what God wants said. And so that's inspiration. Um, and th the point is, God can do that if he wants to. Uh, you know, the questioner asks, well, why would God do this and not make them perfect in every other area of life? And my question is, well, why not? Why not? God had a message he wanted to communicate. He chose them to communicate it and, and chose to do that through human beings. And he knows the weakness and imperfections of human beings. So why wouldn't he also choose to make sure they got the message right that he wanted to communicate, even though they're, they're not perfect people? And that's what inspiration is. Inspiration is required because God chose to communicate his message through imperfect people. So he's going to inspire them, i.e. supervise and oversee what they're writing to make sure they get it right. It's their very imperfection that makes inspiration necessary, right? Like The same sort of thing shows up with miracles. Why did God work miracles through some people and not other people, even though they're imperfect people, right? People's imperfections never stopped God from working through them, and God is God, so God can do whatever he wants. So, um, why would God do this through imperfect people? Because God had a message he wanted to communicate. He wanted to make sure they got it right. So he helped them get it right. That's what inspiration means. If you believe the Bible's inspired, that's what you believe God did. Now, one last uh, one I want to deal with on this episode is more of just sort of a sentiment, a feeling. It's a, it's a kind of a common sentiment that sometimes comes up. And that's this. Why should I trust a book that's thousands of years old? And oftentimes this comment comes up from somebody, oftentimes when they're being challenged by what the Bible says, or they don't like something the Bible says, it goes against their, their culture, it goes against their preference, maybe it goes against their own behavior and their way of life, and they're just sort of, they're just kind of real quick reaction is, well, why should I trust a, a book that's a thousand, you know, it's thousands of years old? Sometimes even the follow-up to that is, and not only that, it's thousands of years old, and it teaches hurtful, hateful things. Well, first off, just know this, that disagreeing with doesn't equal hurtful or hateful. So just because the Bible disagrees with you and maybe has a different worldview than you and maybe even has a different uh, take on how you should live doesn't necessarily mean it's teaching hurtful or hateful things. It's just disagreeing with you. And now you need to decide whether you're going to listen to it or not. And so disagreeing with does not equal hurtful or hateful things. Not only that, um, I think when we raise this kind of uh, sentiment, this sort of objection, we need to be aware of cultural snobbery and prejudice. Like just because the Bible um, isn't from our culture uh, doesn't necessarily mean we're right and it's wrong. That's cultural snobbery. That's actually prejudice. 
we need to be on guard against that, even with regards to uh, pieces of writing and literature like the Bible. The Bible comes from a different time and place, a different culture, a different world where the standards were different, where the world was different, where they looked at life differently. It's rooted in history. And that doesn't make it automatically wrong and us automatically right because you know, we're so much more sophisticated than they were or anything like that. We need to be aware of that kind of cultural snobbery and prejudice. What we really ought to do is try to listen closely, just like you would if you're traveling overseas to another part of the world where it's radically different than you. You shouldn't automatically assume, oh, these guys are so, you know, crazy and weird and stupid and dumb because they're different from us. No, what we would want to do, what's the what's the gracious, loving, kind thing to do is actually listen to them. Try to get to understand their culture. Try to f- figure out, well, you know, why they do things the way they do. And be curious. And we should do the same thing with the Bible. We should be curious and try to understand it in its culture, in its time and place, hear it on its term, and then figure out what all that means and how that ought to play out maybe in our world. So beware of cultural snobbery and prejudice. Not only that, just because something's old, just because something's old doesn't mean it's it's false. Like, you don't tell truth with a clock. You tell time with a clock, but not truth. You tell truth in another way. You tell truth with reasoning and thinking and logical arguments, right? That's how you tell truth. So just because the Bible is old doesn't mean it's automatically false. And just because our ideas are new and modern and up-to-date doesn't mean our ideas are automatically true. You have to determine truth by the standards of truthfulness, not simply by issues of date and time. And so our, our real, our, the real thing we should try to do with the Bible is we should seek to understand it before judging it. Uh, even some of the things that seem weird or hurtful or just off base to us, maybe we should seek to understand those before judging. Uh, some of the things in the Old Testament, they're just so culturally far from us. Maybe we should seek to understand those things, really understand what's being said before judging and before determining that it's just hateful, hurtful, stupid, wrong, weird, and old, right? So just because the Bible is old doesn't mean it's false, doesn't mean it's not wise. In fact, increasingly, I think we need some wisdom from ancient folks and ancient people because we're so myopic and so caught up in our own culture that maybe someone outside of our culture could actually speak some wisdom into it. And I personally think the Bible is a very reliable and good source to do just that. Well, that's a handful of uh, topics, questions, and sentiments that have come at me over the years or here recently uh, about uh, the Bible that I, I just think it's good for us to think those through. And hopefully it's helpful to you to have some framework as you wrestle with that. The uh, long story short is this, that When we put the time in, the Bible proves to be incredibly historically reliable, incredibly trustworthy. It actually passes on some incredibly insightful wisdom to us, Um, and it would be well worth our time uh, engaging with this book, hearing it, putting in the effort to understand it, recognizing that sometimes reading the Bible is like, uh, you know, getting in a time machine and going to a foreign culture, and it's going to take some work for us to understand it. But if we can hear it and learn it and understand it on its terms and then come back into our culture, we might come back wiser, deeper, richer, better human beings if we would do just that. That's what I believe about the Bible, and it's been incredibly meaningful to my life. 
So I recommend it to you as you wrestle with some of the stuff. Hope these, these thoughts are helpful to you just to give you a little more confidence in what the Bible actually is and how the Bible actually works and that it's historically reliable. All right, I hope you have a great week in Jesus. Keep seeking him, keep walking with him. I look forward to talking to you again next week.